0: on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. After 4 months in the studio, sessions for the Beatles' new LP were drawing to a close by mid-October 1968, with plenty of songs to choose from. The band were getting to a point where they needed to make some final decisions about which tracks to keep and which ones to discard. A flurry of recordings in the previous week had quickly added more titles to the list, most of them being songs which had been demoed at George's house as far back as May, after returning from their trip to India. But it wasn't over yet. Returning to the tape shelf between the 11th and the 14th of October, the Beatles, and a sextet of saxophones added a few more augmentations to a song of george's written with the addictions of a recent guest bandmate eric clapton in mind no it wasn't pot or lsd it was of course chocolate Take one of Savoy Truffle, the lyrics to which were drawn directly from the names of the various delights found within a box of Good News Chocolates. The story goes that Eric Clapton, who was petrified of going to the dentist, couldn't resist the temptation of the treats even when faced with crippling toothache. Lyrics for the first line of The Middle Eight were courtesy of ex-press officer and friend of the band, Derek Taylor, who told George about a semi-documentary film about the hippie scene in San Francisco, called You Are What You Eat. George turned this phrase on its head to open the song's bridge. Savoy Truffle is also the only other Beatles song, apart from Glass Onion, also on this album, to directly reference another Beatles song in its lyrics. The basic backing track of Savoy Truffle was begun during the week that the Beatles spent away from home at Trident Studios. Producer George Martin had suggested that engineer Chris Thomas score the saxophone section, who added their distinctive part on the 14th of October. While George Harrison was happy with the playing, he wanted a dirtier sound, which was achieved by overloading the amplifiers into the desk. Upon inviting the session players up to the control room to listen to the playback, George apologised in advance for what he had asked to be done to their sound. But, as we know... The artist is always right.
1: But what is sweet now turns so up We all know blood deep, blood dark. But can you show me where you are?
0: An isolation mix of Savoy Truffle, another strong contender for the final album. Another of George's songs was completed on the 11th, though mainly through the mixing process. While a little bit of automatic double tracking was added to George's vocal here and there, it was John's sound effects tape which was flown into the mix in different places which really added the final touches to the track.
2: Starched white shirts. You will find a bigger piggy stirring up. All tonight's to eat the bacon.
3: One more time.
0: Mono remix four of Piggies the version which made it onto the mono edition of the final LP. Due to the human touch needed to drop the sound effects in during the mono and stereo mixing processes, which were done separately, there are slight differences between the two mixes in the timing of the grunting noises, which the more attuned Beatles listeners can discern. The rest of the week was devoted to tweaking and refining the mixes for various songs completed so far. However, there was one song, again written in India, which had always been intended for the album but hadn't yet been committed to tape. Folk legend Donovan explains how the distinctive guitar sound used on the track came to be.
2: Hello, Paul.
4: In uh, John Lennon was fascinated by this guitar style. When we relaxed enough into the jungle, right there on the Ganges, we got the guitars out. And I played acoustic guitar all the time. And as I picked, one day John said, how do you do that? I said, what? He said, that guitar picking. I said, well, let me look, because I'd forgotten actually. I was just doing it naturally. I'd forgotten the techniques, I just played a song. When I wrote a song, a new technique would be used, Uh, but I'd forget how I learned it. But I had to slow down the guitar picking to remember how I was taught. And I said to John, our teacher, and we sat down and John learned it in two days. I took three. Songwriting changes when you have a new style. And a completely new style opened up to John. And it was really cool to watch this. McCartney wouldn't sit down. He didn't want to learn sitting. He was walking around with his guitar. He'd walk in, he'd walk out, he'd walk into the jungle, he'd come back, he'd listen what John was learning. And Paul's so smart, he's a genius, of course. And Paul picked it up by ear. And his particular picking, when he learned it, was completely different very very unusual way he was using the guitar picking and he got blackbird and mother nature's son and john wrote dear prudence julia
2: It was till then. There was just the one, wasn't it? I couldn't. Couldn't I go from there? You know. Cause it, <laughs> no. Because that one was perfect, wasn't it? <laughs>
0: Take two of only three takes which were needed to capture John's song Julia on the 13th of October 1968. The song is ostensibly about John's mother Julia, from whose care he was taken at the age of five and a half, and with whom he resumed a relationship in his teenage years. She taught John the banjo, she introduced him to the music of Elvis Presley, and openly encouraged his pursuit of music and his early work with Paul McCartney. But, was tragically killed in July 1958 when hit by a car driven by an off-duty police officer when John was just 17 years of age. However, there is a lot more to the lyrics of this song than first meets the eye. There are references to John's new love. The words Ocean Child are a direct reference to Yoko's name, which means child of the ocean. The opening lines are lifted almost verbatim from a 1927 collection of proverbs by Lebanese-American writer Khalil Gibran, called Sand and Foam, in which he writes, Half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it so the other half may reach you. It was long thought that only three takes of John's new song were committed to tape on the 13th of October, with George Martin and Paul McCartney doing his best impersonation of the smarmy record producer, watching and listening from the control room of Studio 2. However, the session tapes actually contain a number of rehearsals captured beforehand and were recorded over by John's three official takes. They reveal that John's choice of guitar playing style for the track was in doubt at one point in the evening, as was his stance in the studio.
2: Is it better Dunneal, up? you think? Very hard to sing this, you know. Hunt? Yeah, oh. yeah, maybe I should strum it first. I I Half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you. Jude Better like that, I can sing it better, but I can't play it better. I'll just try picking it again, but slightly faster. Half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you. I sing a song of love for Jesus. Yes?
0: Rehearsals for the last song recorded in the White album sessions. With a couple of overdubs, John double-tracking his acoustic guitar and adding some vocal lines, the song was now complete and would take its place at the very end of side two of the double album. Nearly a solid week of mixing then took place, including assembling the album in a mammoth 24-hour session over the 16th and 17th of October, in which John and Paul were heavily involved. George had already flown out to Los Angeles. With so many songs to choose from, a great deal of thought went into how they would appear on the album. Several songs were eliminated altogether, namely John's strange What's the New Mary Jane and George's Not Guilty, With an aim to have each side last for about 20 to 25 minutes, with no composer having more than two songs in a row, and spreading George's four songs across the four sides, there was also a thematic approach to song placement. Many of the heavier songs, such as Birthday, Year Blues and Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey, were reserved for side three whereas the animal-related songs of Blackbird, Piggies, and Rocky Raccoon were banded together on side two. In a move reminiscent of Sgt. Pepper, many of the songs were cross-faded or cut very abruptly to avoid the customary three-second gap between tracks. Prime examples of this being the crossfade from the Pot Boiler opening of Back in the USSR and Dear Prudence, and the quick change from Bungalow Bill to While My Guitar Gently Weeps complete with John's oh-so-northern expression. Other bits and bobs which were used to tie songs together, taken from several reels of session chat and bloopers, were Paul's improvised ditty Can You Take Me Back Where You Came From, which linked Cry Baby Cry with Revolution 9, as did a morsel of chat between Beatles office manager Alastair Taylor apologising to George Martin for not bringing wine.
2: A little of claret for you if I'd realised. I've we'll all time. about it, George. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me?
0: Yes. Sheepage. With the album now mixed, assembled, and ready to go, the only two things missing were a title and a cover. But how exactly does one follow the psychedelic label and pop art masterpiece which was Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band? Paul, for one, was keen to go in completely the opposite direction this time. Indica Art Gallery owner Robert Fraser, at whose London gallery John had met Yoko, and who had introduced the Beatles to Sgt. Pepper pop art creators Peter Blake and Jan Howarth, suggested Richard Hamilton as a potential designer. Having considered other titles, including A Doll's House, after the play by Henrik Ibsen, Hamilton suggested the minimalist title of The Beatles. And an equally simple cover design of, well, nothing, except for a tiny embossed album title. This was not John and Yoko's idea as one might expect. Photographer John Kelly was approached to take the portrait photographs for the inner gatefold sleeve and the larger inserts which would be pinned to bedroom walls all over the world. Paul handed Richard Hamilton three tea chests full of photographs to create the famous and slightly rude collage poster, which, like Sgt. Pepper, helpfully included lyrics to each song on its reverse side. And of course, there are the famous serial numbers used to distinguish one album from the next, which makes original pressings of the album collector's items today. Upon its release, the White Album predictably went to number one on both sides of the Atlantic and in many other places. Today, it's widely regarded as one of their best studio albums, producing some songs which have become synonymous with each of the writers. However, this appreciation wasn't always forthcoming, even amongst the Beatles and George Martin themselves.
2: It's, it's like if you took each track off and gave it all for all mine and all yours, it's just like I told you many times, you know, just me and the backing group, all in the backing group. And I enjoyed it, you know, but we broke up then, you know.
4: The White album was—we were all
1: in the middle of the sort of psychedelic thing, or just coming out of it, or whatever. But it was weird, you know. I mean, I mean, never before have we recorded with like beds in the studio and kind of people visiting for hours on end and business meetings and all of this. There was a lot of friction during that.
4: Your new album will be a double pocket LP, is that right?
1: Right. um, Yeah. Four sides, 95 minutes, 31 tracks.
4: Right. Is this uh, on a uh, Sgt Pepper-type trip or you returning to, or are you just going to be... No, uh, it's,
1: it's nothing, it's not really like Pepper with that concept, you know, of a, a show. Right? It's nothing really like that. It's more just like a regular album, but right. it's not. It's a different thing altogether. I'll play it to you after this,
4: Okay, get look, the idea. Looking forward to hearing it.
1: Paul, I'd like you to talk about the LP in general. What do you want to say about it, Tony? The songs, I think, um, perhaps a surprise to some people because I think a lot of people expected another step from Sergeant Pepper.
2: Well, it is another step, you know, but it's not necessarily in the way people expected. Uh, on Sergeant Pepper, we we had more instruments and uh, instrumentation than we never had, more orchestral stuff than we'd ever used before. So it's more of a production, and we. But we didn't really want to go overboard on that last time. And we've tried to play more like a band this time, only using instruments when we have to, instead of just using them for the fun of it. Is this for any sort of concept of being able to do the things live? Uh, Yeah. And also for the concept that we like playing together. That's the main concept. <laughs> George, I think it...
1: Might be possible now for you to sort of make some comment about the last album. There was sort of a mixed reaction. Mixed I suppose the white, the white album, one, yeah. Yeah, I guess you saw a lot of the reviews and so on. Some people call it the best yeah, thing right. since Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. Other people panned it. It was such a wide like yeah. How do you feel about it now? Well, I think in a way it was a mistake doing four sides because um, first of all, it it's too big for people to really get into it. For reviewers and also the public, maybe now people have bought it and if they've really listened to it for years or since it was out, then they, you know, they'll have their own favorites. And there's a couple of things that we could have done without on the album. And uh, maybe if we'd have made it just compact, mm-hmm. 14 songs, say. Which tracks do you think I would take to the Well, things, uh, but then again, it's only my personal no, thing. Oh, sure. I- you know, because in a way, Revolution Number no. 9 was all right, but it wasn't particularly like Beatle. <clears throat> a lot of people put the album down purely because of that track. Yeah, but then again, you know, it has good points because Revolution Number no. 9 worked very well in the context of all those different songs. I mean, that was the great thing about it, that if people spent enough time listening to it, then there was all different types of music and types of songs, and there was nothing really shocking about it. I don't think there was anything particularly poor about it. But um, it was a bit heavy, you know, I find it heavy to listen to it myself. In fact, I don't listen to it myself. <laughs> I listen to mainly Side One, which I like very much, with, you know, uh, Glass Onion and, um, what else? Glass Onion, Warm Gone, yeah. yeah well, I like that, be, yeah.
4: When they did the White Album, I thought we should have made probably a very, very good single album out of it, rather than making a double album.
2: Well no, I I agree. We should have put it out as two separate albums. The White and the Whiter album. Uh, a lot of information on a double album.
1: But you know, what do you do when you've got all them songs and you wanna get um you wanna get rid of them so you can do more songs. You know, there was a lot of uh you know, ego in that band and um, there was a lot of songs
4: that should have just maybe been elbowed or made into B-sides. I think it was an album which could have been made a fantastically good album if it had been compressed a bit, and condensed, but a lot of people I know think it's still the best album they made. So it's not my view, but um, horses for courses. Well, you can always say that, you know, it say perhaps I'll go with, but not definitely. I mean, in fact, I think it's a fine little album. I think the fact that it's got so much on it is one of the things that's cool about it, because it's the very varied stuff, you know, "Rocky Gun, Piggies," um, "Happiness of Warm Guns," that that kind of stuff. You know, uh, I think it's a fine album. You know, I'm I'm not a great one for that. You know, maybe it was too many of that. What do you mean? It was great. It sold. It's the bloody Beatles' white album. Shut up.
0: With the new album out of the way. The Beatles took some time to do their own things, apart from running Apple. At this time, John and Yoko got busted for possession of cannabis, Paul continued working with new Apple recording artists such as James Taylor, and George had flown to Los Angeles as final mixing for the White Album was taking place to produce an album for Jackie Lomax, popping up on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour on the 15th of November.
4: Uh, Tommy also has a special guest uh, too, and he'd like to introduce him right now. Wouldn't That's he? right, I have a beetle. Oh, no. Yeah, but it's not the kind of beetle you would expect it to be. It's the kind of beetle that you, uh, I think, you hoped it would be. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Harrison. Uh, saw the uh, several weeks ago we had on uh, your your people did uh, oh hey Jude. hey Jude and Revolution. Yeah. We thought Tommy and I both thought that Hey Jude was the best presentation that we've ever seen of the Beatles, and we're glad it was. Yes, well, so are we.
2: That is great. <laughs> you met my brother
1: Dick. Let me introduce. This is Tommy, and this is my brother Dick. Hi, Dick. Hi, Dick. <laughs> Enjoyed your work. You look different in person. Yeah, so do you. Yeah. It's all the makeup. Too can much it... makeup. Do you have something important? Something or... very important to say on American television.
4: You know, we don't we a lot of times we can't we don't have the opportunity of saying anything important because it's American television. Every time you oh, say well. something and <laughs> they try to say something important, they uh
1: yeah. clap, 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 clap. clap, 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 clap. Cue the lines. <laughs> well, whether you can say it or not. Keep trying to say it. That's what's important. You get that? Yeah. <laughs> that is very important. Cue, 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 cue. Ah, just,
3: just a minute, just a minute. Wait a second. Okay, cue the clap now.
0: Hey. Hey. George Harrison making a point about censorship in the USA, as the Smothers brothers had had a few difficulties in this domain. While working on Apple's sweetheart Mary Hopkins' debut album in late November 1968, friend of the band Donovan, who had contributed several songs to her album, dropped by the studio. He and Paul couldn't resist playing a few tunes together as the tapes were rolling.
2: Sitting on the body beck and dancing in the double decker shoe. I don't know. So, how'd you do? <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Lord he knows I try. But every time I try, you do it. I hold on to
3: this
4: time. Remarkable man, I come to sitting on the couch and make
1: a
2: shoe. double decker shoe. I don't know. And takes over. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how do you? How the other Ah, no, no. I I said, how
4: does <something> <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Cheap as well, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> economically viable. The <laughs> whole darn tongue is tied up. darn tongue
2: is <laughs> tied. I don't know. How do do? How the lollipop the of a double X shoe. I don't know. How do you
4: Yeah, you find it if you get in beginning and I've begun a few, I can tell you. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it's easy you just get a little organ and guitar and a voice and a bit of echo and you've got a suddenly you've got a painting, you close your eyes, you've got this speech and things happen in films. What does it sound like? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very nice. Does it? It's a good guitar for that. <laughs> We're nice people, too. (laughs) (laughs) That
3: helps. I love my poem.
4: Where do you get the bass from? (laughs) (laughs) Savile (laughs) Row.
0: two songs featuring Paul and Donovan, firstly, How Do You Do, which appears to be a children's song of Paul's own design, and Heather, written for his soon-to-be stepdaughter Heather Eastman, with whom he was establishing his relationship through Linda. November 1968 would see tragedy strike for John and Yoko, as after a long stay in hospital, they suffered a miscarriage on the 21st. The 28th would see them in court on drugs charges, and fined 150 pounds, although the conviction recorded would become much more problematic for John as he fought to live in the US only a few years later. The year ended better for John and Yoko with their appearance in the Rolling Stones' television special, Rock and Roll Circus. A production more planned and structured than Magical Mystery Tour, the program was designed to promote the Stones' Beggar's Banquet album and was to include an eclectic range of performers Jethro Tull, The Who, Marianne Faithfull, Taj Mahal, and Supergroup Traffic, featuring ex Spencer Davis Group lead man, Steve Winwood. However, just before filming began, Winwood quit the band, leaving a sizeable hole in the lineup. Mick Jagger begged John to get on board, and John agreed, forming an incredible supergroup of their own.
4: Winston, welcome to the show. Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. It's really nice to have you, John. As you know, I've admired your work for so long and haven't been able to get together with you so much as I it's want. It's not
2: been my fault, Michael. Uh, do you remember uh, that old place off Broadway? Oh, those were the days I want to hold your man. <laughs> remember that. John,
4: I want to talk to you about your new group, the uh, Dirty Mag, sure. which you got together for tonight's show. Well,
2: of yourself and myself, the... that's Winston, leg, thigh, you know. And we've got Mitch Mitchell from the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Are you really? Yeah, experienced? Really? Oh, very, very. You've read my file. And we've got Eric Clapton from the Cream, the late great Cream, Cream. Michael, the late. Fantastic. Great. And we've got Keith Richard, your own soul brother, Dirty. Great. I'd like just to give you this, Mike. On Thank you, John. Of the British public. You're, a blues, John. You're a blues, John. blues, John. You're blues, John. You're blues, John. John, what are you doing on this show? Uh, singing a song. <laughs> yeah, blues, folks. You yeah, You're blues. And that's the reason why.
3: <laughs> I'm lonely. And <laughs> so that's the reason why.
2: I'm lonely. John. <laughs> Mick and I have been performing together for years now. it's uh, well, so nice so to have you back. And um, wonderful. I think we're gonna Great sing to your you a little song, which it's yes, really I'm nice. I'm lonely. Wanna die? Yes, I'm lonely. Wanna die If I ain't dead already Ooh, you know the reason Cut Quiet, please There's still some talking
1: going
3: on Market.
2: You know the reason why
0: Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we explore some more of the songs that the Beatles gave away. Until next time.